Hey everybody, welcome to Stuff Said, the show where I, Greg Schiegel, cartoonist, talk to people in the worlds of comics, cartooning, and beyond. And normally in this intro, I tell you who the guest is and we just roll right into it, but I want to do a little bit of preamble because it's it's there's a certain relevance. I don't know, if, uh, time became interesting in this. When I try to record these conversations so they don't have any particular timeliness to them, but in this particular instance, the the release of this show is, I don't know if serendipitous is the word, but it kind of is. So here's what happened. I sat down with my guest, who is Chris Staros, who at the time, and this is why I'm couching it, at the time was one of the co-publishers of Top Shelf Productions, a comic book publisher, a smaller boutique, I guess you'd call it comic book publisher, indie comic book publisher, anyway, I was hedging on saying he's the, he was he was the co-publisher because this episode is being released on January 15th, 2015. About 10 days ago, the news came down the wire that Top Shelf Productions was being acquired by the publishing company IDW. As a result, Chris Staros is now the editor-in-chief of Top Shelf which I guess is an imprint of IDW, a division of IDW. And Brett Warnock, who was Chris Staros's co-publisher at Top Shelf, has left comics. This is relevant because we talk about Brett, we talk about Top Shelf and things of that nature. Obviously, I'm talking to Chris Staros in this episode. One-time co-publisher, now editor-in-chief of Top Shelf. But what's interesting is had I released this show last month, December 15th, this would have been all like, what? And if I, you know, anyway, it's interesting. Also interesting is this was recorded, this conversation was recorded in June of 2014. So a good six months prior to the release. Why well, I, I take my, hey, listen, I put out one show a month, I edit, I clean up, I add music, etc. But with the news, I figured, you know what, let me do a little follow-up with Chris before... I put this episode out so that, you know, maybe I can get some questions answered. And one of the questions I had, I mean, the real question I had was, what, like, did he know when we were talking in June, did he know that this was happening? Like, were these, was the deal being brokered at the time? And I'm going to save the answer to that question because I asked him for after the conversation, I'll give you the, the, that's, that's what they call a tease in the business, something to keep you hanging on. After the conversation's over. So, with the tease out of the way and the setup out of the way, this was recorded in June of 2014. It's a great conversation with, with Chris Staros, who is super interesting. And the sort of thing where, like so many of these conversations, it could have gone on for much, much longer. And I appreciated him giving me the time. We recorded this at his home in the state of Georgia. That's relevant because we started. You'll see how the thing starts. Uh... Also interesting, worth mentioning, because you'll see, kind of serendipitous that this is coming out in January, because this month marks what would have been Elvis Presley's 80th birthday. And the relevance of Elvis Presley will uh, will become apparent fairly, well, you'll hear it. But here's me talking to Chris Staros at his home in Georgia. I'll talk to you on the other on, on, uh, I'll talk to you on the... Ooh, that's hard to say. I'll talk to you on the other side of this. 
I've been, I've lived here now, gosh, 31 years. In this house or in this city? Um, in this city. I've okay. been in this house for 22 years. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looks like a new house. Yeah. Nice work. It's <laughs> <laughs> very impressive. Holy smokes. By the way, while you were getting your, your water, I was just looking. I've so embraced the digital stuff that I, I don't even think I've seen WYSIWYG, like what it looks like in physical print. So it's cool to see the spines of these books. That I've only seen these little JPEGs on a on a screen. I know it is amazing. Digital stuff's really taken off, you know. And it's one of those things where, you know, not as a publisher, I was not wanting to embrace it, but as a reader, I kind of didn't great, want to right? embrace it. You know, at the beginning, I just yeah. kind of had that old school mentality a, a little bit, you know. But I, you know, I jumped on board and went with it, and with our digital crew, you know, uh, Chris Ross is kind of spearheading our digital efforts for the company and him and I together worked on the plan and and we just embraced it fully and it's done it's done really well for us but I tell you when I when I load up a, my SUV to go to a con and drive yeah it sure does feel like an anachronistic effort you know <laughs> like here I am loading boxes and boxes of books so it's like so grandpa you mean when you wanted to sell 20 copies of 10 different titles you had to caravan two SUVs and 50 cases of books to get them there and it's like you know rather than just click download you know well there was there was a time and i I don't imagine you could possibly remember this because if you do you're remarkable but in i'd I'd been going to san diego comic-con i think i started going in 2002 and i went 11 years straight and 2013 was the first year i didn't go and i didn't miss it but for three or four years i'd go to your table i'd see you and brett and i would just buy just a stack some ridiculous stack of books to bring home. And then it got to a point where it was like, A, it was too hard to walk around San Diego Convention Center. And B, it started to appear digitally where you could go, you know, even more recently digitally. But it just became, and then at a certain point, you don't want to carry stuff home. But I can imagine trucking books around. Well, it is. It is weird. I have noticed that pattern it shows, which is there's this, people are getting uh, more whiny about carrying stuff. Over the last few years, which is typically the big buying day at cons was Saturday, you know, which was the big day. Yeah. Now there's a little bit of a tend to I don't want to carry until I absolutely have to because I'm still on the <laughs> digital fence, you know. And then the Sunday on the way to the car, a lot of stuff ends up getting bought now. So digital has affected the the whininess level of carrying stuff. <laughs> and, and I can only imagine it helps when there's somebody there to sign a book to get yeah. people to to buy it on the spot. If and Jeffrey ha- Brown is st- is sitting right there and he's only there Saturday, you're going to move books on Saturday. Exactly. And and people still want the physical objects, you know, but they're just a little bit more planning of a when they're going to carry <laughs> the stuff. Where before there was no alternative. So yeah. everybody was a pack mule by their very nature. Now they now they uh think about it a little bit more. Now in terms of what well, we'll segue the touring bit into you were a touring musician for years. <clears throat> Before you were in the comics game, that is correct. I was more of a sort of a weekend warrior, oh, you know, okay. kind of metal guy because I had a day job. But we played, you know, literally we would sometimes we'd be playing clubs, you know, nine to five at night, nine p.m. to five in the morning. Sure. I'd come home two hours later. I'd take off all my makeup and then get dressed and go work, you know, nine to five and all try right. to string it all together. A million questions. Mm-hmm. First, 
makeup where you do you weren't full like kiss style makeup you were no, just stage makeup no we were just sort of just stage makeup eyeliner eyeshadow mascara sometimes a little bit of white powder you know you, i was a heavy metal guitar player six one 150 pounds 155 pounds so you know you're definitely going for the ha- the heroin chic look you right know? so anything that could accentuate that and of course it was the you know between like 83 and 89 which were my heaviest years of playing and so that was a day where you would you would really do it up now i i wasn't really sort of like the poison kind of look with the big hair and the and the finest woman's clothing kind of thing but right. more of the just a little bit more of the hard edge sort of rock stuff. So like rubberized cotton pants were sort of like pseudo leather, the the cutoff t-shirts, maybe leather jackets, maybe tuxedo jackets, you know, but <laughs> ear, earrings, nose rings, uh, uh, bracelets, belts. You definitely were in the, the Johnny Depp of accoutrement kind of So is it thing. somewhere between like metal and punk? Yeah, in sort of, spectrum? yeah, metal and hard rock. Like if you go okay. to... And since you're in New York, if you go to like Trash and Vaudeville sure. and shop there, nothing has changed. The Trash and Vaudeville is the time capsule for all hard rockness. <laughs> so, I, I, in fact, I was there three weeks ago. I, I took a girlfriend of mine to go shopping there, and and I was like, oh my god, these are almost identically the same pants, the same style shirts, everything that you could buy now, except I just can't fit into them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody want, would want to see me in them anymore. But yeah, the metal stuff is pretty much made for for lean lean machines. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. At at that point, then you get into I guess. Although there are there's a band called Valiant Thor. I don't know them. them. I don't know them. They wear like jean jacket. They're they're long bearded, jean jacketed. I'm not a metal guy, which is the other question. Mm-hmm. I never took to it. Like, I've heard you in a number of interviews talk about it, hearing your first Black Sabbath record and right. just, like, locking in. Like, I want to do that. What is... And I have friends, and there are a lot of comic book people that love metal. Like, that's that's their thing. What is what is it that strikes you about that music? Well, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, because I was born in 62, so it, around the mid-70s, I was a teenager, so... Uh, Sabbath was hitting it strong all throughout the 70s with their albums. Your Kiss Alive came out in 75. And there was Cheap Trick and Aerosmith. Aerosmith hit in 73 with their first album. In fact, I think Aerosmith's first album was the very first album I actually bought in a store, you know, with Dream On. Because yeah, yeah. I, I heard it on the radio in 73. And, and, and back at that time, cars in the early 70s only had AM radio in them. They didn't have FM. And so AM was really bubblegum and poppy. And I remember like, being like 11 years old and going over to some older dudes' houses where weed and other things was going on and, and you know, and people had FM tuners, you know, where, which, you know, things were always dimly lit and those tuners lit up really beautifully and they were playing FM radio and the fidelity was so incredible compared to what you'd hear in your car, you know. And they were playing, you know, all the LA radio stations, you know, and hearing Zeppelin and the Eagles and all this stuff, which you just, in Sabbath, the stuff you just knew. This was adult music, you know, this wasn't like and share or the stuff you were hearing on the AM radio and I grok to it immediately and the the hard rock bands hit me the most and I think it's just because I mean you know when you're an adolescent boy you've got a lot of angst <laughs> and sexual energy and all that kind of stuff and most I was a Scorpio always have been right you know we're supposed to be dark and broody and sexual and so metal just seems to be like the perfect outlet and you were able because it might be just me like i'm i have a terrible time hearing lyrics right 
Like even in the most pop simple song and the metal stuff is so lyric back and, and instrumentation forward. Did did the did the lyrics was that something you had to then read liner notes? Were you reading the, the albums or were you hearing it? Lyrics weren't that important to, sure. to metal people in the sense that we if we understand if we can hear them, we'll try to make sense of them. But really it's more about the melody and the vocal tones and the, the guitars and you know and the whole sound of it all. So So what is the melody of metal? Well, I mean, I preferred the bands that actually had singers. You know, so Ozzy Osbourne was a sure. singer with Sabbath. You know, I was never really a big fan of the Cookie Monster guys, you know, that yeah. came around in the 80s. You know, I liked bands more like Motley Crue and Rat in the 80s okay. and Guns N' Roses and stuff, you know, when the 80s bands came in. But I was really more attached to like the 70s bands like Kiss and Aerosmith and Sabbath and Cheap Trick and things like that. And then in the 80s, I was a big fan of the Colts too. I really liked them a lot, you know. But just something that was powerful, uh, the sound of a... A crunching guitar was always what moved me. So if you had a good guitar and a vocalist with a unique sound, you know, I was I was going to be on board with that. And so I picked up the guitar at a very early age. And, um, and you know, I, I, I tried to be an athlete when I was really young, but I learned a lot about raw talent at a very early age in all the wrong ways. You know, like, I remember once being in a, like, in early as a high school, like the coach would have this race first day a year where he would go, you work out all summer and come when whoever wins the race gets the trophy. So me and the other mediocre runners, we decided we're going to train all summer and get ready and show up first day class. So first day class, there were two sets of twins that were really good runners that showed up Cheech and Song, Chong style to the first day <laughs> class, opening up their Dodge darts and spilling out of their car with just smoke <laughs> pouring out everywhere. You know, they were high as kites. Didn't work out all summer. And they showed up and just kicked our asses, all four of them, beat us by at least a minute on these cross-country races and it's like okay there's a lesson in talent for you just you can work really hard but having a little bit of talent's not bad and so with the guitar you know i finally picked up the guitar and within a, a year i was playing in bands out and it was like oh all right it's a, a lot of hard work but also i have a, an aptitude for yeah. it i have an ear for it i you know mechanically i can play the guitar so you know you you tend to pursue things you're good at at some point and so I, I really enjoyed it. Music was always my first love, metal, and of course I was always a big Elvis fan too, you know. But the oh, we're gonna get to Elvis. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but but I've always been a big hard rock fan, even even now. In fact, you know, I've been really disappointed that you know since Nirvana, there really hasn't been a new sort of hard rock wave that's come in because the the whole sort of current wave there I mentioned the sort of the Nickelback kind of yeah. sounding bands was just like, okay, Cajun, there's a good song in there, but there's there's nothing in that wave that's that really... very affected voice kind of like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's nothing in that wave that's saying new ground's being broken. And, and, and I'm in my 50s, so if it isn't really registering with me, that's pretty terrible. You know, like, I, I, I should be easily impressed at this age, yeah. you know? Um, but I, I kind of want a, a new wave of something to just inspire me again. There's a band called Fu Manchu that I, I, a friend of mine really likes. They're right, pretty, they're pretty hard. I'll check them out. Again, this might be me saying it, so <laughs> gauge that accordingly. You mentioned Nirvana, and I want to talk about, because you've mentioned in a couple of, of other interviews, mm -hmm. that you sort of put the metal on the, sh the the rock on the shelf in 89. Right. Because your your hearing was shot, yep. and because of the, the advent of grunge, right. grunge was, was upon us. Right. So I remember grunge showing up, particularly Nirvana and Pearl Jam, when I was in high school, so it would have been 91, 92, 93. Right. So was this something you saw 
as early as 89? Were you seeing these bands sort of popping up and the sound changing? Or is it just 89 is just a default year that you... Yeah, well, probably probably a little <laughs> bit of both. I don't, I don't really think I had to sort of label A&R wisdom at that age you know which i do now as a publisher you know because i learned a lot of lessons about music about staying ahead of the wave rather than being behind it and i I think about those things a lot now as a publisher but as a musician and especially as a young man it was much more of a subjective experience it's only in hindsight do you see kind of where you were you know in that whole age but um the biggest problem by the late 80s is i had been playing in bands since 78 so it was 11 years my hearing was truly shot like i had chronic tenderness i couldn't uh i couldn't perform on stage without earplugs i couldn't even rehearse without jamming earplugs in and then wearing gun earmuffs on top of those so i'd have to double earplug myself to play because being around drummers was just killing me it was getting to be really really painful my ears were so damaged that they were just uh they were it's called getting boxed where your the body lowers the threshold of pain to preserve what's left so you you have to speak loud enough. To, it's like an old person. You go, speak up, honey. Yeah, and then yeah. I didn't mean for you to yell at me. It's because you're, you are you can't hear below a certain level, but above a certain level, you experience pain. So I kind of have an old lady's ears, <laughs> you know, now by 89 I had. And that's pain, like as if somebody's poking you in your ear? That's how Yeah, kind of, okay. yeah. It's, 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 it's hurt. It hurts. So my ears have actually recovered a lot since 89. But back then, it was it was really bad. Couldn't hear people's voices in restaurants just couldn't make sense of them anymore. I've heard, I've heard that that where you, it's like has to be unidirectional where if you're, you're getting too much ambient sound, it blocks yeah. everything else out. It's because your mid-range, mid-range frequencies get shot and that's where the human voices are. So you, the ambient noise in the room is as loud as the person <laughs> standing in front of you. Yeah. So it's just like they're yeah. moving their lips but nothing's coming out, you know. And then a doctor once put it to me said uh, do you want to play music or do you want to hear the sound of your children's voices one day? And he said, because your charts are just <laughs> God awful and you're only 26, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, well, you know, it's a good point. And then the sea changes was there. Like times are changing. Our singer had just quit the band and uh, to go, go to a new one, we were going to have to do a search for something all over again. The styles were changing. I knew that. And by the time you hit your late 20s in metal you do start to settle down a little bit especially after playing nightclubs for 11 years i mean sometimes we'd i'd be in the house blues band and play all night long you know sets and so you were in nightclubs all the time and eventually you just sort of settle down i'd still and deep down inside would love to play out so i'm just too old my hearing's too shot and i probably really don't have the energy if i really be honest with myself (laughs) but the fantasy of it still works and i still play like an 80s metal guitar player i mean i still am loud and fast and obnoxious except i'm now old and kind of soft-spoken and easygoing now so when you play at home do you just pick up the car and just not guitar and just not plug it in no i'll plug it in i just won't i just won't turn it up loud right i just keep the it's a huge amp and keep the volumes low yeah i used to have a ton of i mean i used to have a Double stack of Marshalls, a whole bunch of guitars, and you used to have a really cool setup, you know. So you didn't, you never had an experience where your band, what was your band called, by the way? We were called Lethal Promise, which is the name of band you could only come up with in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. A very 80s name. <laughs> so was there ever an instance where Lethal Promise was booked for a show or, or was trying to get booked at a show, but one of the newer grunge bands 
sort of scooped in? We never really had that problem. Okay. I mean, we the, our biggest problem was just getting gigs like every other struggling act. You know, sure. you're just trying to get on a bill, play for free, drive yourself there, not, you know, not make any money, pull your pennies together. You know, we were, we were on the low end of the run. We actually had some good songs. We were a pretty good band, but in retrospect, you know, we were just a little too late. The stuff that we had would have been great in 83, 84, but it was ready around 88 or 89, and it just, uh, the timing wasn't right. You so you know? never signed, you never had an album? No, we had some management for a while. We we put out, uh, we put out cassette tapes, you sure. know, and sold those at shows and stuff. But we never did end up pressing vinyl or whatever, which we should have. But so it was an amateur operation for sure. It never really went that far. But we had a great time. But that seems to be the case with all the—I don't even know what the right word is—but all the the occupations that are uh, off off the path. So music, cartooning. I always talk about stand-up comedy a lot because it's these jobs where there's a good ten, maybe twelve years where you just you have to do it with the promise that something will come of it. Oh yeah, in any kind of. <laughs> endeavor you got to work your ass off for 10 years just to get on the map yeah just to get in the game doesn't mean you're going to be successful <laughs> yeah. it's just so that you're in you know i mean i'll teach i'll teach uh, some classes at scad and the savannah college of art and design and comics every quarter and you know that's the first thing i'll do to students when they come in i'll say how many of you people know who i am and i'm not doing it as an ego boost i'm just saying and you know yeah occasionally i'll get a 50 percent Hit. Sometimes 80% because they've taken yeah, my yeah. classes before, so I, I win. And that or they're comics nerds who are paying attention. But I've had a couple of classes where nobody wow. knew who I was, right? And, and I'm like, okay, so I said, you know, I've been running Top Show for 20 years. We're known as one of the really good guerrilla marketers in the field of comics. We do 21 shows a year because of the rock and roll influence of touring. You know, I, I believe in the Loretta Lynn, hit the car. <laughs> give your records to DJs kind of approach to life. So we do a lot of shows and we've had some hits, you know, with, with Alan Moore and Craig Thompson and all these other guys. For sure. And you don't know who the fuck I am. All right. And here you are <laughs> thinking you're going to be a famous cartoonist next year. And I was like, I understand you don't know who I am. I'm just saying that's how hard it is to get noticed. And I've yeah. been in the game 20 years and I still fight that battle every year, even at Comic-Con, you know, maybe Five percent of the population knows who the indie press is at yeah. Comic Con. You know? At this point, as Comic Con is even just more and more insane, do you guys still have the same placement, like yeah. in the center of the whole? Yeah, place? yeah, what? we're still there. <laughs> What's it like there? I can't even. I'm, I for the, the last times I was there, I was Artist Alley, which is way off to the side, and just to get to anywhere is a struggle. So I never yeah. left. Well, at my philosophy at Comic Con is not to move. Yeah. which is let everybody find me if they want to yeah. find me, you know? So I just kind of stay in the booth, you know, and try not to venture around too much, except to explore the room at least once to get a sense of you what's try, there, yeah. you know? Do you find that to the touring thing into Comic-Con, do you yeah. find going so many different places? So all, all year long, do you find differences in the different regions of the country that what the fan bases are like? Is it, is the Pacific Northwest more receptive as, uh, uh, cliches would had you believe than you know i don't know central texas um i don't i don't know playing two cliches which is not fair but yeah 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 i don't i don't know about that you know i i, I think it's more of the you know it was one of those that was a great show or that wasn't a great show kind of thing you know where like people were really receptive that year or not and it kind of ebbs and flows even within regions you know when you you have a hot book everybody's yeah. interested or when you're everybody's there to 
spend money one year everybody's there not to you know (laughs) and it's weird like it's very much like molecules in a balloon so it's much more about if the con is busy and the aisles aren't too wide and there seems to just be a lot of traffic and energy in the room people spend a lot of money it turns into a really good show for everybody but if it the aisles are a little too wide the, the population is not that significant and it just seems more like tumbleweeds it's not something memorable enough to fans to spend money at because i fans tend to spend money at cons they want to remember and if it's not that hot a show that year they don't want to remember that much and they don't spend money so it tends to be like if if it's busy and vibrant then it turns out to be a good show for everybody i don't know it's 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 a it's, it's a weird no, thing. Nothing sort of, draws a crowd like a crowd. Yes, kind exactly. Of a yep. mm-hmm. Are there places you look forward to going back to? Like, it's, you know, again, the assumption might be uh, Mocha is a, is a great show for you guys because right. you're top shelf and you, you sort of, you're the grandfathers of the whole thing. <laughs> right. Well, we love doing a lot of the shows. Yeah, obviously, like, Comic-Con's still our big show of the year. That's good. Even though it's very mainstream, it still has a huge contingent. And also, publishers like us and... Band of Graphics and Drona Corley and Giant Robot and Slave Labor and all of us guys that sort of congregate together. Yeah. We are sort of like the last bastion of real, serious comic book people who still believe enough what we do to, to hold hold court at Comic-Con and say, the rest of you be damned. You can be here too. But this is what Comic-Con is about. It's about publishing comics and about breaking new talent. And we're here come and hang out with us because so much of it now has gone Hollywood. There's a lot less retailers than there used to be at yeah. Comic-Con, a lot less pure comics vendors there. So I'm kind of proud of the fact that there's 10 of us there that all congregate together and the, the fans in the know know where to come to to get what's new, you know. Now, before we get to modern day, I want to jump back. Yeah. So Top Shelf forms in 1997. You sort of retire from music in 1989. What happens between 89 and 97? Oh, you mean the drug years? No, is that what that was? <laughs> no. Well, obviously there's the Staros report, <laughs> right? Well, I guess there's a couple of things that happened during those years between like 89 and 91. It could be the drug years. Yeah, That's fine. No judgments. I wish it was. Yeah. <laughs> no, the in between 89 and 91, actually, I was just you know, I was working in the software 97. industry. Yeah, but yeah. it was the first. Couple oh, okay, years. the first. So you're you're years. taking me piecemeal. Great. Yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> The first couple of years really was just working, you know, like I was in the software industry working on uh, actually DOD projects that I can't talk about. And um, <laughs> DOD the, uh, is the De- Department of Defense for yeah. people listening. <laughs> Star and, Wars stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and was doing that for a couple of years. And I had, al- I had been in software for a long time. I, ca- I graduated college in 83 with a specialty in artificial intelligence. So I had been working in really? the AI field for a number of years as a software guy throughout all the metal years, I did have a day job then. So at that, that like particular the movie time, war games, like that kind of exactly, stuff. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Making machines do things that if humans did them, you would call them intelligent. Right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's what we were working on, you know? So I have a, a long history in that field. And so during those two years, I really was just working, you know, I just uh, working was married, ha- you know, have a happy home life or whatever. Even though half of my brain was always very analytical and sort of businessy like or whatever, the other half was very artsy. And so I always had to find this sort of mix. And so that's why the metal kind of offset the software side of me, right? And so by the end of those two years, I was really getting kind of depressed because I had no artistic outlet. I wasn't playing clubs anymore. I was missing that. And that's when I just happened to stumble upon it. You know, like I've done this 
answered that question many times in interviews where I stole upon a comedy for Vendetta. Discovered V for Vendetta and had that same epiphany that I had when I heard my first Sabbath album, which was like, I, I want to do this and I could do this. And so that's what started. So between like 91 and 94, I just read comics. Like I actually decided I needed to do some research and I literally read thousands and thousands of comics, you know, trying to get up all the indie stuff, all the Smithsonian stuff, you know, lots of graphic that novels. That giant hardcover book. That, yeah. 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 That thing's that, awesome. Right. But things like that, just trying to understand the industry. And, and I found that comics was a lot easier to get your arms around as an industry than say prose books would be or wine right. or music or film. You know, it just was a smaller niche kind of industry. So you're reading Comics Journal, you're reading yeah, those sorts of things. Exactly. Are you dipping into Wizard Magazine at that point, or are you keeping that out of your I spectrum? didn't subscribe to Wizard. Occasionally, I'd pick one up. I, I didn't really read a lot of the mainstream stuff. I was yeah. really looking at the Comics Journal and all the indie publishers and going... The literate really, comics. Yeah, really diving deep in there. And that's where the Star Wars Report, the zine, I started with sort of was formed. So three years of research, then 94, I put out the first Star Wars Report, and I started to join the ranks of, uh, you know comic them self-publishers at that age you know so it really it's been over 20 years since my first publication in comics which was march of 94 so we're we're just over the 20 year mark here. congratulations there you go i guess that makes it a career supposedly if there had been any money <laughs> well it's like they say if you live somewhere for 10 years you are you become a, a native place yeah. yeah you go native <laughs> so yeah so 1997 you start top shelf that's when i started in comics that's where i got my first job drawing a comic and then I started working at Marvel Comics. So it's funny that my career is in, is is mirroring in terms of length top shelf cuz I remember seeing top shelf stuff pretty early on. Right. I don't remember what the first top shelf book is that I had, but we're going to talk about certain books in a minute. Yeah. The olive with the toothpick. Right. As the logo. Is that just a reference to top shelf liquor or is it some other is well, there something else to it? The the company uh was started by myself and my partner, Brett Warnock. Yes. And for a number of years, for at least a decade before the company started, Brett was a uh, bartender. So wow. the name Top Shelf was actually not the original name of the company. The name of the company was Primal Groove Press, actually. And the anthology that Primal Groove published was called Top Shelf. And at some point, Brett decided... I like the name Top Shelf better. And because he was a bartender, Top Shelf was so bar-oriented a term, like yeah. the best liquor on the Top Shelf, that uh, he changed the name Top Shelf. And then, you know, we incorporated it and it became a, a company together. And so all the the bar motif, you know, the, the, the martini glasses, the olives with the toothpicks, those became the symbols of the company. We actually, in the early years, used to do a lot more bar-oriented logos than we do now but we've always kept the olive with the toothpick as our as our spine logo even yeah. though our regular logo it has the top shelf with the four sort of elvis dots on it you know and that kind of uh, right. uh that logo has always stayed as well since the beginning it's a very specific aesthetic mm -hmm. that the, the top shelf design motif which is because the books all look so different like across the spectrum compared to and we'll talk about it a little bit later compared to something like first second right. where their trim sizes are all Steady across the board for the most part. Right, right. And they all have the French flaps and they all look like they published those books. Or right. Just, you know, whoever else is doing it. You guys, the, the people you mentioned, you guys, Fanographics, like it's project by project. The format changes entirely. Right. Uh, do you find that that helps or 
because I've asked this question of other of other publishers where it's you know is there a defining vision in terms of what you're putting out a, a, a mission statement and I've heard you talk about how top shelf is you want it, the I believe the phrasing you used was unique hip cartoony with heart and warmth right uh, that is correct yeah subtext and heart are the things we look for along with unique styles that are sort of cutting the wave of you know so future artistic vision of sorts you know but is there heart, a way to do that in terms of and again, this is strictly on a, on a physical product basis. Right. Because I remember, you know, the tables you set up, there's so many different books and so many different looks. Right. Do you want, do, does that help promote that mission statement? Do you think it throws people off to see so much? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, every house has its house style and, you know, you just try to do the best you can at any given time. Sure. I, I've always kind of hated sort of like the, the financial idea of editing a book, which was the reverse engineering, which is you got 128 pages because we're going to price this at 9.95. Here's your trim size and go, you yeah. know? And so now your artist is kind of got into, you know, shave out 20 pages, think about his artwork at a different size or whatever. We prefer the more artistic approach, which is you tell the story you want to tell and we'll think about together how we're going to package. Is it big? Is it small? What is it? What is its statement? You know, and we're going to package around that. Now, I don't mean that projects should be verbose. And in fact, Top Shows, through me as one of the companies that actually spends the most time actually editing stories with people and having people rewrite stuff and making it succinct and excellent. But whether it turns out to be 128 pages or 328 pages, I don't care as long as that's exactly what it was needed <laughs> to tell the story. I would hate to tell somebody who's got 300 pages that it can only be 158 because that's all the budget you're worth at this point in time. Right. Then, then that's the project we shouldn't be doing, you know. So I prefer to think art before commerce. A lot of publishers do the opposite, you know. And that's probably why we've never taken over the world financially. <laughs> <laughs> to that end, to making these books that fit this ideal in terms right. of what you want to publish is there a singular example that you can point to and say this is an achievement of this side this this book whether it's top shelf or not is there a book you know peanuts could be described as hip cartoony has heart and soul well, well i think you know time will not time's not kind to anybody when you go when you jump forward in time 20 or 30 years and, and there's even one person in the room that still remembers what top shelf did they would probably go that's the publisher that did blankets Right. And that's that is that's what we're going to be remembered for, you know. And I mean, it will have published 500 books, a whole bunch of winners. And down the road, even if you're lucky enough to find somebody who even remembers us, they'll go, those are the guys that did blankets. And so I think blankets is a perfect example of sort of a, a, a trend setting, game changing graphic novel. It was it was the first 600 page book that had never been serialized for us. It was truly released as a graphic novel, yep. you know, as an event. It was the first like 600 page, $30 graphic novel that was unheard of. And it was one of the first books that really cracked the book trade to the sort of the literary thing, got in time magazine, opened up people's eyes as to what a comic could be. It wasn't the only one. It was, it was just our contribution to that wave that was being run by lots of publishers who were helping out with that. I mean, I was the top shelf doesn't get credit for that, but we were part of the movement that helped uh, re-energize comics as a literary art form, even though there was lots of people helping out in the, in the 90s with that. You know? Well, to, to, you just made me think of this. To your point about a, a publisher creating a format before the, the content, I remember, this would be a story from Marvel Comics, we had a book, an editor had gotten laid off, and there was a book that was like three-quarters of the way done, just sitting in a drawer, a Western. And I tried to get it published as an original graphic novel on like 
yellow paper with brown ink, like something distinct. Because mm-hmm. at the time, I was looking at Top Shelf, but this would have been ninety eight, ninety nine. Right. I saw Top Shelf books. Uh, there was an Optic Nerve collection. There was Ghost World. There were all these books that were sort of popping up. And I went and I showed it to our P&L guy, profit and loss numbers guy. And I, I said, it's this many pages. This is the book. It's mostly done. And he starts punching in numbers. And he goes, okay, it's uh, 128 pages at seventy at $15.99. I'm like, wait, why is it $15.99? Like this book right here, Optic Nerve Collect, you know, mm-hmm. is $12. And it's tiny. Well, this is what we price our trades at. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, this isn't a trade. And I just couldn't get through. And he's like, we got to print up 30,000 copies. And it's warehousing. I'm like, why are you printing up 30,000 copies? <laughs> it was really frustrating <laughs> in terms of trying to get this Western comic that I knew 30,000 people were not going to buy. Right. It was 1999. Nobody was, you know. Well, when you do the math on the small press calculations where the P&L guy was actually thinking, okay, <laughs> we're gonna, we need we need 1,800, but we'll print 3,000 or whatever <laughs> and this kind of thing. And it's going to cost us to print. They would veto every single project you brought them because from <laughs> yeah. P&O point of view, none of it makes any sense. The indie press makes no sense from a P&O point of view on the on the individual project basis. You know, uh, Over time, we've grown so that our print runs have grown beyond that and, and we can print deeper and go longer. But even still, because of the, the nature of the production values going up over time in the industry, just to have a art object, to be an art house publisher, but also to compete with digital in a sense, you know, to have a leave behind. Yeah. You know, even on slightly bigger runs, you know, five or 10,000, those still aren't the kind of size runs you really need to truly be profitable in this game. So you you depend on your back catalog a lot to to, uh, to finance your front list, which oftentimes loses money, you know, yeah. just because you're trying to, to print enough to get the unit cost down to survive and believe in something to sell over the long term i don't know it's it's a difficult game i really oh, know for sure i'm i'm self-publishing something now and you know it's like you you only have so much room to store these things but you want to get your number your print number up so the unit yeah. cost is low to make it worth it so that if you're selling through a distributor not just th- through your own pocket you're getting a couple of yeah. bucks off each copy etc etc i always say a publisher's basement is overflowing with optimism you know because you know, your warehouse is just chock full of things. So you would, it's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that even having 50 copies left of this book is a lifetime supply. You know, that's just a horrible realization because you love all your children. You want people to read them. You know, you so want people to read them and, and, you, and you see the velocity on different titles, you know, head to zero. Some, some hit perennial status, which is great. Everyone's trying to get a title does that, but oftentimes you see it head to zero and it just is tragic, you know, it's tragic. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Craig Thompson. Now we're going to segue into a very specific kind of thing yep. because Top Shelf is such a unique organization and you have so many creators and projects you've shepherded through the system as right. it were that I kind of am going to be selfish and talk about things I've liked sure. and just make conversation out of that. So Craig Thompson, certainly blankets before that goodbye chunky rice, which right. might've been one of the early things I read which is amazing. But the thing with Craig Thompson is there's two questions. One, where'd you find him? Cause I'm giving you credit, you and Brett credit for finding him. Right. So that, that will do that one first. Okay. Well, Brett and Craig found each other first and they both lived in Portland, Oregon. So there was a, just a space and time coincidence that they ran into each other. Craig had a, a small mini comic about a, a little turtle named Chunky Rice, which is about, I don't know, I can't remember, it's like three to six pages or eight pages or something like that. And Craig saw it and thought it was just 
awesome. Brett know, saw it. Right, right. Craig is one of those few cartoonists that just came out of the womb fully formed. Like he drew He's like a champion yeah. on the first day on the job, so to speak, you know. And people always just say, what's your job as a publisher? It's like, it's to keep my cartoonists from killing themselves and to keep them off from killing Craig Thompson. That was, you know, <laughs> that was sort of my job, right? Because it, he just was that good a cartoonist. And so we, he said, why don't you develop this little turtle story into a graphic novel? Or maybe Craig had already was thinking about that. I, I can't remember the order of events. So he put together the first draft of, of Goodbye Chunky Rice. And it was so beautifully drawn. But I actually had some problems with the story because I thought it was uh, could have been structured just a little bit better. And I remember talking to Craig about that. And we had an honest conversation about the book and really talked about it editorially. And Craig actually went and redrew probably two-thirds of that book. So the version you see is a completely different version than the one he turned in originally. But when he sent me the final version of that book, which he made all those changes, and it was came in at whether about 128 pages or whatever, I cried. I was actually at the Alternative Press Expo in a hotel room with about 18 other guys who were all crashed there trying to save money. You know, I wasn't yeah. 18, but it was like four or five, right? And and uh, the uh, FedEx, I had him FedEx me the the revised pages to that hotel and everybody was still crashed. I read it that morning. I cried when I read it. It was so beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I realized that Chunky Rice was, you know, it was the start of something pretty important in comics. Then of course, a few years later, blankets came along, which I didn't touch at all editorially. It just came in as sheer perfection. And as it was coming, because it took him about five years to do that book. I realized that, I knew in my heart that Blankets was going to change everything because it was going to be the kind of book people had tattoos on, you know, and <laughs> it was going to change the way people drew and the way people thought about graphic novels. It was really going to inspire a lot of people. So I spent, while Craig was spending four years drawing, I spent four years telling everybody Jesus was coming, you know, second, yeah. the second coming was here. And when the book came out, it lived up to that hype. It, it, it started off slow, but it just sleepered out and became a huge hit. And, you know, it's definitely one of the things I'm, most proud of from a from a publicity orchestrating point of view getting the word out there obviously the content was there but we really had just because something's good does not mean anybody's going to know about it or care you still really have to do your work as a publisher to get stuff out there because quality alone is not a news story unfortunately you need an angle you need a spin you need something to get people's uh, attention on this book and and so, you know, Blankets is a, is a very proud moment for me in comics, even though Craig did all the work and it's his book from top to bottom. <laughs> but you publish- guys gave him the platform to do it. Yeah, and, you know, the publishers behind the guy's scenes, I get that. You know, in time, it'll just be remembered as a Craig Thompson book. And in yeah. time, sometime down the road, Top Show's Night will be published by somebody else. You know, at some point it'll be in the public domain and everybody will publish it. You know, it, it <laughs> but it's... It's still one of those things that privately I feel a lot of pride in that I had some involvement in that in the early days. You should. I allow you to have that pride. <laughs> uh, but then somebody like Craig Thompson, who is clearly from the gate, you know, super talented. Right. Other people are also going to notice. Right. So he started doing work at Nick Magazine for one, mm-hmm. and and we're we're all friends. That's not a that's not a thing. But sure. in time, you know, his next book, Habibi, was published by his Pantheon, right? Right. And he's now he's got a book with first second. So, and I know you are altruistic in that you want good comics and good art comics and and good things. But I feel like there must be a a push and pull where on the one hand, like great more Craig Thompson comics. On the other hand, you're like, man, <laughs> man. would I would I have liked to have done them at <laughs> Top Shelf? Absolutely, of course, you know. But the interesting thing is, 
You know, I've had to come to terms with several things in in life. I mean, in a similar in a similar tone. I, I, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but Jeffrey Brown is another example of somebody who is having a whole different level of success or notoriety, right? With these other things. But I'm sorry, interrupt. Yeah, well, the, the, the whole world changed. You know, back in the, the early days, there was no big publishers in comics. There was no book trade. You know, right. and so there was no pantheons of Simon and Schuster's coming in and cherry picking everybody. <laughs> so it was much more easier to have everybody stay loyal to those brands. Like yeah. you were a top shelf guy, you were a fan of graphics guy, you were drawn a quarterly guy, whatever, and you you'd st- or girl and stay with those companies. You know. And then once the big guns started coming in and offering these crazy advances for books, you know, the, the creators would be stupid not to expand the horizons and take those things. Where in sort of the Elvis analogy, Top Shelf sorted to become a very microscopic Sun Records kind of scenario where we would find people, we would break them, but we wouldn't necessarily be the ones able to capitalize on them, you know, because they'd, they'd, they'd go on and do projects with other things. Where things finally came around to a happy medium, which I'm very happy with now, is that the creators have all realized there are some great advantages to being with the big houses, and there are also some great advantages to being with the small houses. So why not do both? Yeah. You know? So, for example, Blankets is always on our front burner. It's always a book we're pushing. It's always a book important to us. Generally, with the big houses, it's a seasonal thing, and then they move on to other things. So you've got a small house who's chugging around like the engine that could, setting up at 22 shows a year, Always having your book on the table, always working it, working it with schools, working it with libraries. And so you have this sort of uh, perennial nature with the small houses. Now, the big houses can put more money up front, maybe even some more marketing into books as well and maybe make them go deeper. But Top Shelf knows how to make a book go deep, too, as well. Yeah. You know, But so there are there are advantages to both. And I think what people like Craig have done and Jeffrey Brown have done, which has been great for both of us, which is. Yes, do the books with the big guns, and then also come back and do a book with us. So Craig's got a new book coming out with us, probably summer 2006, called Dude Dude. And then he has his book with First Second. And then he has his book with Pantheon. And all the publicity from all those things, plus all the publicity Top Shelf brought to the table with Blankets, they all help each other with the books do well. Jeffrey Brown's case, he's gone on to do the Cat books and the, the Vader books and the Jedi Academy books. But he also came back and did a matter of life with us. So his literary stuff came with us. He's coming back to do Change Bots, Change Bots two point something something. <laughs> yeah. You know this fall with us. And so the I really really respect that loyalty to the small press and guys who could just vanish and go with the big guns from here on out. But I think we've all come to realize it's important to support our the core industry that we have, and it's also it's also important to balance what you do with big people and small people. Because they both bring something to the table. So following the metaphor, are you Colonel Tom Parker? Um, I don't know about that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the Colonel obviously had some some good and bad elements <laughs> yeah. to him about it. And, and uh, you know, so more probably like the Sun Records guy. But, you know, is there a Colonel? Phillips, is there, Phillips, okay. you know, right? but, um, is there a Colonel Tom Parker in comics? Without uh, You don't have to name names, but is there... Know, Probably not because comics is just too small. <laughs> you know, if there was a Colonel Tom Parker in comics, comics would be much bigger than a billion dollar a year <laughs> industry, nuts to bolts. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, like I was on the plane once talking to, uh, just happened to be sitting next to Bill Gates' Xbox guy. And we were talking our respective lives. I'm thinking, you know, it's just like our lives are identical minus six zeros you know <laughs> you know like the budget the ad budget for one of his single player games was the size of the entire comic book industry. yeah you know i mean the, and so 
we haven't had a Parker explode comics yet onto the scene like he did with the King. I guess it'd probably be Stan Lee, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of Elvis, speaking of the King and all of that, let's talk about Rich Kozlowski, who did The King. Yep. And the first book of his I read, which I bought at San Diego from you, Three Fingers. Right. Uh, and then B.B. Wolf and the three LPs. Right. All great books. Yeah. Great books. So he's a guy. All his books are pretty high concept. Like you hear him and go, yeah, of course. That sounds awesome. Three Fingers being this sort of comic book documentary about cartoon characters and why they have three fingers and a thumb. And it's super cool. It's right. so good. And The King, which, again, I read a long time ago, but it's The King is not dead. He's still Elvis is still alive. And the the Memphis Mafia is still doing their thing. Well, it's it's a story about an Elvis impersonator who oh, that's what it is. who who whose stick is he's the king reincarnated, and so they, like this right. tabloid reporter goes in to sort of debunk that. And that the deeper he goes into it, the more questions are raised, and that he's not so sure anymore. And it's more a, a story about redemption. And the, how much and, did you love that one? You must have been. Well, I mean, it was one of those first things where my two worlds collided. My love for Elvis and my love for comics collided into some of the King. And so I really put a lot of work in this book. Unfortunately, the book should have been a huge hit because it's a masterpiece. And the comics world did not adopt that book to the level I would have liked because Elvis is a superhero. He's actually a, a living, breathing superhero, but the, he's not a superhero to comics fans. He's not on their radar as a superhero. You know, those worlds yeah. don't intersect. But I absolutely adore that book, and it's still worth picking up, and people should pick it up. It is a great... All, all of his books, he actually wrote a novel that's not even available anymore. Do you ever read The List? Yeah. It's so good. The Santa Claus one. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so... If you guys publish novels, I'd say put that thing in print. Yeah, he self-published that, and we, we, we yeah. sold some while it was in print from our tables and stuff. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. So with somebody like that, who's, who's working in these high concepts and these sort of big ideas, and he, he plays them out beautifully, how do you shepherd that? Like, he hasn't done anything in a while since B.B. Wolf, which was now... What was that? 08, maybe? Right, right. Which was very cool. That was Three Little Pigs done as like a... I had like a blues story. It was, right. It's, it's, yeah. it's with the sort of Southern racism as the yeah, setting yeah. for it yes. and, you know, reinterpreting the story along those lines. So, you know, do you... those those stories are so beautiful and so good. But again, it becomes down to at some point economics. The older a cartoonist gets, you know, you get a wife, you get kids, you get a house, you get a mortgage. Right. You need to start not just doing projects because you believe in them, but because so you can get a page rate out of them and generate some royalties on them. So, you know, he does a lot of work for Archie. He's, yes. he, he does page rates for that. He gets good money for that. And so he does his indie projects, but he can only schedule them in every so often. And because, he went to an art store too, right? Right, yeah. yeah. They, have a, they have a store as well. Is that because you can't, you, you just can't dedicate that much time to something without drawing income. And these things sell, but sell modestly. Yeah. And, and where the publisher spends the money to get them out, but there's not necessarily a lot of money left over after that to just, you know, <laughs> fatten anybody's bank account it's more of the fact that this story had to be told it was important to be told and it reached a certain audience but not such a big enough audience where everybody made money yeah. on it you know and so just the economics of thing come into play at a certain point in a person's career where we just can't do those projects at all but he does have a lot of concepts in fact when the elvis one came around and bb wolf came around they pitched a bunch of different ideas and we were all thinking oh that one that's a good one you know run with that and they developed those things so there's there's more stuff that could happen in time yeah everybody go support rich kozlowski's stuff i want more of his his stuff yeah all three so of those good. books are fantastic so. i feel i feel a tinge of regret there was one year at comic-con where he came by and i didn't see his name tag until too late because he was coming by and he was looking i, I draw spongebob stuff and he was looking at pages and i think he bought a page 
And then as he walked away, I saw the name tag. And I was like, and I sort of like paused and, I, and the name clicked in my head and, and it was gone. <laughs> and I couldn't express to him like, you, you might like this SpongeBob stuff, but Three Fingers is so good. I read that on a flight, the flight home from San Diego, like the whole just burned through it. I was like, right. This is handed it to my friend. I'm like, got to read this. It's great. David Yurkovich. Okay. Who's similarly a guy who did this thing and now hasn't done something in a long time. I was buying his books. The Shop and Death by Chocolate off the stands in single issues when he was a sleeping giant. He was self-publishing. Right. So a few years back, you guys picked all this stuff up and collected them. Were, was it the same thing? You were reading it when it was coming out? Or how did you guys come to David Yurkovich? I think we met at a convention. We started talking. Then when you know, he handed us some copies of some of his things, and we read them. And, you know, the... The quirky superhero nature, because we don't do a lot of action, adventure, kind of hero kinds of stuff. So right. if we did, it would have to have a certain kind of a spin on it, you know, that made sense to us. And the quirky nature of his work really appealed to us at that time. We decided to put out those two collections, those two trades. And, and they did they did fairly well, but again, not well enough to just, you know, burn down the house with them and, yeah. and such. It's and a then, real distinctive thing yeah what he does yeah exactly and so and then after that he uh, he adopted a child they did he had a lot of you know family he's really enjoying raising a family and such and so we've sort of just parted ways from professionally but we've always been friends and always respected each other's contribution to the medium you know we really enjoyed those books i tried to work with him when i was at marvel as an assistant i got in touch with him and you know he sent pitches in and it was funny because the pitches he sent in he was doing he he really liked Ditko stuff, which was not surprising. Mm-hmm. So he was pitching like Doctor Strange stories, but they were done in that 60s Marvel style, which was lovely. But I'm like, no, no, I want you to do you. Like, right. I want a David Yurkovich version of something. Right, right. Uh, and it never quite, I was an assistant editor, so I only had so much power to do anything. Mm-hmm. So we never quite got anything off the ground. Yeah, well, that's cool that you tried, though. I like that. You know, I I tried. There were a few times where I, I swung for the fences and didn't quite... Hey. Didn't quite connect. But if you you're swing, in this right? game, that's what you. You spent a lot of time missing the ball. I give a lot of credit to to my boss, Tom Breward, who would let me make these calls. I go, yeah, yeah, give it a shot. Just let them know that you can't pay anybody. You're just soliciting. I'm right. like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Right. So I got to make a lot of calls. Uh, and David also got really involved with Bill Mantlo, right? Mm-hmm. Like he worked with raising money and helping him out quite a bit. All right, the next name is Jess Fink. Okay. So you got Chester 5000 and We Can Fix It. Right. I got both of those during a top shelf digital sale. Uh, and We Can Fix It completely knocked me out. Completely surprised me. It's not at all what I expected. Because on the outside, it looks like a little kid's book. Like, you know, it's very cartoony on the cover, bright colors, the whole nine yards. But it turns into a really intense kind of memoir with a sci-fi element that and a sex element how do you find Jess Fink? Is it just you re- you find Chester 5000 online? Yeah, I met her at a convention, you know, uh, saw some of her stuff online. Jess just blows me away is how effervescent she is personally and how effervescent her work is. It translates to her work so beautifully. And also the fact that she handles sexuality with such an ease and confidence and naturalness that it's the way I wish the world was about sexuality and sexual issues. You know, like hers is the template for how we should all be, you know, excited and engaged and interested and respectful and 
adventurous and and, and funny. Yeah, Chester Five Thousand is funny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny and titillating and natural, and it's very, you know, it's girl friendly too. But it's yeah. also very guy friendly. Like I, men totally grok on the the <laughs> yeah, sexuality yeah. of it as well. You know, it's not. And well, and, on some of that on some level, it's like well, a, a a woman wrote and drew this thing, so this is in this is like inside information, right? You know what <laughs> I mean? If you're reading this and you're like you're getting intel, right? And she's got a huge online presence. You know, she's very active on Twitter, very active on on blogs and on on websites. So she has a, a really nice online fan, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed putting out those two books. We'd love to do more down the road. At so how point. involved in terms of the story of, of We Can Fix It, which I, I really, it was really surprising to me when I read it. How involved are you with that? What what part of the editorial process gets involved in sort of figuring out the nuts Her and bolts? Her stories came in pretty much unaltered. I, I didn't have any problem. I mean, we, we would fix a couple tiny things here and there, but it was more I's and T's issues, right. you know, not big structural issues because she's just a natural storyteller, you know? Something... You know, an editor, you, we play to the cartoonist's strengths. If they're weak on design, we'll bring in people to help package their books. You know, if they're good designers, we might let them run their designs by us and then, you know, choose them and work, you know, go run with them. If the story's a little weak, we might help them think about rewriting some of the parts and questioning some story choices here and there and have them rethink them and, and such. Or if some of the artwork's a little weak here and there, we might say, let's take a look at these few pages again. But Jess' stuff is was fine coming in you know it was just we were just excited about it and so it was more of just a packaging issue you know let's figure out how to package them put them out when to put them out so to the packaging issue why the rounded corners just a rounded corner well it's only one rounded corner on the book the other one's square but just for just a flourish you (laughs) know just to give it that sort of because it's sort of futuristic so we got a little bit of a foil stamp on it one rounded corner just to give it a little bit of a zing back to the future vibe a little bit you know the last guy I want to talk about, and this one is I'm giving Top Shelf complete credit because I had not heard of him or seen his work at all, is Kevin Cannon, who is unbelievable. Yes, like, he is. He's fantastic. He's <laughs> so good. Like that, I read Far Arden, and I couldn't believe just his use of sound effects, his movement, the the just the pure cartooning of it is so good. And then Double Barrel was awesome right and then crater xv which and then, is the collection of abs the second volume is out so now, you call so. it crater xv i always call it crater 15 well that's fine I, you may be right <laughs> <laughs> so we'll never know kevin's, kevin's not dared to challenge me on that one i guess but so so funny story about kevin right? yes please so he i've never met him i i only know his work far arden starts off as his grand vision of doing 24 24 hour comics and right. this is going to be his grand thing and I'm like, if you think I'm going to publish 24, 24-hour, <laughs> random, crappily thought-out, produced comics in a trade that's going to be 500 pages long and cost me a fortune, you're crazy, you know? <laughs> and so he had done, like, the first three or four, and I'm going, well, show them to me, you know? And I read them, and I'm like, it's beautiful, but you have spun off like 18,000 threads in those first 40 pages. And you're telling me in these other 24-hour comics, you're going to be able to tie all that stuff up? I go, you you show me that. Tied up neatly, you know, back on itself, round story from all those ideas, and I'll publish that book. But they're not right now, you yeah. know? 
And so the 24-hour concept finally just faded, and he realized he actually needed to think this stuff through and <laughs> right. design a story because he had spun off a thousand ships in those, literally and figuratively, a thousand ships in those first few pages. And he had to think about how he was going to tie all that stuff up. And so he actually finished the he finished those you know four or five hundred pages, uh, sent it to me, and I read it. I'm like, and I'm thinking in my head, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's all these things. I'm, I'm as an editor, I'm keeping my head. He's got he's got to address all this stuff. And by the end of the book, they were all dressed, and they all ended up in this shockingly <laughs> surprise ending that just totally took me off kilter, but but was brilliant at the same time yeah. and worked. I was like, this book is fantastic. So good. We always knew he could draw his socks off. I mean, like Kevin's artwork is to die for. And that's sort of that big little book format of Far Arden and, and Critics Views are very blocky and square and thick. There's something really meaty and satisfying about holding them. I personally think, I agree with you, everybody should read Far Arden and Crater XV or 15 or whatever and love them. And he needs a much bigger audience than he has. He's, We've sold well with them, but we should be in fifth printings on those, not seconds. We should, people should be reading his stuff. It just, but just the, I mean, the pure cartooning of it, like yeah. his ability to tell a story. And, and then to top that off, I start reading Double Barrel, which is super cool. And I want to talk about that experiment because right, Xander and him are friends they're not related but right. from the other same last name and of course Xander's book Heck that came out which was the other part of yes. Barrel has done really well yeah I don't want to dismiss this. Xander because right, Xander's, Xander's super talented brilliant. He's been, he's but been, I knew about him since Replacement God yeah. way back when we didn't discover Xander he's had yeah. a long storied career and then came along and we finally found a project to work on together which was Heck which has also been awesome but in know. Double Barrel he's also doing Penny from the fr on the front mm -hmm. which like in terms of line work and line quality is taking things to a whole other, the cross-hatching and, and the beauty of that and the expressions and everything are so good. And then it just sort of leaves you hanging that it's going to be wrapped up somewhere. Yeah, we may not want to talk about this on yeah, mic in case we'll, it's... Well, we're going to do more with Kevin, that's for sure. So let's talk about Double Barrel. Double Barrel was, and still is, because uh, presumably it's coming back, is Kevin Cannon and Xander Cannon's digital first series. Each one was $1.99. Each one was over 100 pages and they serialized what became their graphic novels Crater XV slash 15 right. and heck so you guys have been very top shelf when I say you guys very forward thinking on your digital initiatives more most recently you've gone DRM free on a bunch of stuff and your pricing is outstanding mm -hmm. like you are doing things with digital pricing that everybody should be doing because it's a different marketplace it's a different audience and you can move units, like, <laughs> right? Like legitimately move units. Um, I th I hope you're moving units. Yes, we are. Digital okay. has become quite big for us, and 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 a, a, a lot of thanks goes to almost all thanks goes to Chris Ross, who's our digital guy, who's been helping with that. And he's had to convince me a lot of stuff. You know, like <laughs> we need the prices low. Prices low? Are you crazy? You know, like. But the it is a different marketplace. It is a different thing. And I've embraced all of that. The DRM free stuff, the, you know, cause this is like every time the, the game changes, you know, you, you start to sound like that a person 50 years ago is like, we're going to sell our stuff to libraries and people right. can read them for free. You know, I mean, or the newsstand guys, they were resistant to the direct market in the, in the seventies yeah, or what have you, you know, so the, or, you know, rock and roll has got to go. You know, <laughs> like you, you find yourself repeating these lines in your own head and you okay, wait a minute, the future is here. We've gotta we've gotta embrace it and move forward and, and run with this stuff. And and it's all working out very well. And also the digital stuff is not 
bastardizing the print stuff. They seem to be helping each other in yeah. a way. Where they're that the digital is getting more awareness to, to, to people, hitting a different market, so it's just adding. And there are people who like to buy print who still do. And then there are people who love the digital thing so much that, that, that the book became not just a casual read for them, but a touchstone. Again, because Top Shelf does books that are subtextual and have a lot of heart, they tend to resonate more than the average book does out there. You know, So if it touches you deeply, you also end up going and buying the print edition so that you can have for Arden and Crater X to be on the shelf because they look really awesome on the yeah. shelf. They're they're good objects too. So you end up with both the digital and the print edition. So I'm, I've been very happy with the digital. And Double Barrel was also kind of a, a leading experiment of a, of a of a serialization prior to print release. You know, so and it did well. So is Double Barrel was that Xander and Kevin coming to you guys, or is this just uh, Chris coming up with this idea that he wants to? put a, a digital first thing together how does double barrel happen i think i think it was a little all the above which was like it's going to take them a while to do the work yeah and so obviously the old school question was let's serialize it first and put it out yeah. as floppies well the floppy market for indie press is really rough you know because <laughs> the numbers are too low it still makes sense for marvel and dc to do it to a certain extent right you but know even someone like terry moore is sort of doing it to, to do it on yeah. his on his books but it's like you know there's some point circulations were so weak it's like do you want to lose money twice or once <laughs> yeah. and let's lose let's lose it once on the graphic novel because eventually it'll go in the black and because that's a perennial but yeah comics are like fresh fruit they're like bananas <laughs> you put them on a shelf and three uh, weeks later they're black and spotty and have to be thrown in the trash you have no can. idea how much i love good metaphors and that is a tremendous one <laughs> You know, so you just why well, lose money twice? But the digital world gives us the the uh, the ability to to serialize stuff in digital floppy yeah. form, and actually generate some buzz and some revenue, so that the guys actually were making a, not a ton of money, but a little bit of money here and there on the stuff as we headed to putting out the 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 beautiful hardcover editions of both of those books. You know, and and so it. It kind of worked. You know, could it have worked better? Could have the digital numbers been greater? Could the print numbers been greater? Sure. But they both, but it did work, you know? And I'm happy with the way Double Barrel came out. I'm happy with the way Hack and Crater XV came out. Well, I will tell you that uh, I'd never had a, a letter printed in a comic ever. And I'd emailed Double Barrel just to say, like, which platform will you guys make the most money through? Is it Comixology? Is it right. the app? Whatever. Uh, apparently it was none of the, and, you know, just when you buy the book, buy it from top shelf. Right. But that letter got printed, my only letter to a comic ever printed, and it's digital. So I, I feel I've so completely embraced it that I ended up buying all 12 issues of Double Barrel and Crater 15 XV. Right. I bought digitally, but I double dipped digitally, which yeah. is crazy. I still can't believe I so did it. So wasteful. So wasteful. I know. But it was so good. I wanted to have it all in one place, even nice. if it was a digital place. Nice. But that's the, the thing. thing. That's the thing, like... You know, as we whip right around to Elvis eventually again. So I was like, if something you love so much, you will buy it. I bought it in, <laughs> I bought it in eight track form. I brought it in cassette form. I brought it in CD form. I brought it in DVD form. I bought it on, you know, MP3s, MP3 downloads. I bought it in every way I could get it. And, you know, so it's like, if you love the content, it doesn't matter the delivery mechanism. You'll just rebuy it, you know? So in terms of, the work you guys do as a whole, do you ever feel like it gets too precious? Which might not be a fair question, but I ask this as somebody, I'm, I'm pretend I am mainstream dude completely. Right. 
And there's there's the idea of art comics and fanographics and drawn in quarterly right. and first second. Right. And there's a, there's actually a running joke my friends and I sometimes have about there's a certain type of indie comic that sort of auto bio sad sack comic. Right. The guy in the laundromat or the guy in the diner who's just pining after something. Right. We refer to those as sad diner comics. Okay. You guys have done a very nice job of not just becoming sad diner comics all the time. Right. Even even uh, Jeffrey Brown stuff sort of transcends that. Because it's funny too. It's right. funny yeah. and it's sort of like almost it's that self mocking awkward and weird. Yeah. And blanket certainly just takes. I mean, it's so poetic and beautiful. How do you keep yourself from? Maybe that's the better for questions. How do you keep yourself from getting too precious? Okay, so the the stereotype of the mainstream is, is that it's all plot and no subtext. Right. It's a bunch of people running around. <laughs> Having trying to have eloquent conversations during a fist fight. Yes. You know, and it's just pointless. And everybody's wearing their underwear outside their pants. And at some point, if you go start getting sophisticated enough, you have to start asking, why are they wearing these costumes? Right? Yes. So that's the, that's the stereotype of the mainstream. They Absolutely. have to wrestle with that. The sad sack comics is a stereotype of the indie press, which I always call navel gazing. It's like the, yes. too much navel gazing. It's all introspective. No, woe is me. Why won't anybody sleep with me? You know, and then, but no plot, no page turning elements, no, no thrillers, no nothing. If you look at television, you'll see the best examples of both of those worlds, like with Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or something, where you have all the subtext in the world, all the amazing characters in the world, and yet you have thrilling plot twists and turns that outsmart you at Every chance you get, yeah, I'm an editor. I should see this stuff coming, <laughs> and they blow me away. And I realize I'm dealing with people so much smarter than me and so much more talented than me. It makes me sick, and yet I'm so happy to be along the ride, right? And you, you want to see in comics that perfect blend of sub, subtext but also plot. You yeah. need both. And so the, the stereotype of our industry is we kind of go down one path or we go down the other. And where you get your best bang for your buck is when you get both. You yeah. know? So ideally... We want to have both in our catalog. Most of our stuff tends to lend itself to a little bit more of the, you know, towards the navel getting inside yeah, with yeah. more plot elements, more hi highly lifted in some ways, you know. But I try to instill that pre-instruction with our creators so that they know that it's important that people want to know what happens next in the story, not just that they get the subtextual bump, you know, that there is some anticipation of like how these characters are wrong. Because you want strong characters in the story, but you want them to be affected by the events of the story and change and have those changes be believable and have those changes inspire you and to have you think about your own circumstances and whether you should change or whether you have changed or those kinds of things. Those That's what we look for, you know. I think that's what I liked about We Can Fix It is it, it could very easily have been a real navel-gazy, this is my story, but it throws in this this time travel twist and the trying to fix things and it just, it takes it, it it really lifted it to a different kind of story right, right. where it wasn't just reading someone's diary. Right. We so much stuff can be. We've really tried to make the alternative press not so precious and not so elitist because yeah. the, the indie press often can come off elitist, you know, like we do stuff that's so much better <laughs> than what you read. How do you read the things that you read? You know, we've never been like that. In fact, if we were going to have a trivia contest or superhero trivia contest, I put my boys up against anybody. Sure. Matt Kent, Jeff Lemire, Robert Venditti. We all Venditti, come from the same place. All these J James Kachako, these guys know their shit. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't come from the world of superheroes because I came to the comics so late, but my guys did. And, 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 the, and the girls in the line did too. And so like, they know their stuff. We've always been friends with the guys at Marvel and DC. We sure. respect what they do. 
in our in my philosophy, good comics are good comics. Period. There can be bad comics and poorly executed comics, great executed comics. Whether they be superhero or whatever, tell a good story. Anything can be told well. Anything can be told poorly. And so I I, I love the iconicism of Batman and 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 Spider Man sure. and things of that nature. Who doesn't? There yeah, are I'm not, symbols of Americana. So Top Stuff's never been elitist in that regard. We've been embracing, but we also knew there needed to be some education to the mainstream fans that this stuff is accessible to you. You can read it without having to take off your Batman t-shirt and appreciate <laughs> it along with Batman. And honestly, that's been a difficult thing because it's American fans are very tunnel vision type yeah. of people. They're very, uh, you know, I'm a Star Wars guy. I'm a Star Trek guy. You know, I'm a Game of Thrones guy. I'm I'm a, I'm a Twilight girl. Guy, yeah. I'm a whatever, you know, like I am. You something. choose your sides. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as they are. I'm as I'm, I'm, I'm as obsessed an Elvis fan as there ever was one. So I have the tunnel vision too. But at but, the same time, but do you time, dislike uh, Little Richard because you like Elvis? No, no, right. no. I, yeah. I, I love all kinds of music. You know, is that a fair comparison? Is that yeah? That's, yeah, yeah. Little Richard hates Elvis, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. But we've tried at Top Shelf to make our stuff accessible, so that if you like, you know, if you like Jeff Lemire's. Sweet Tooth and Animal Man, you read Underwater Weld in Essex County and it fits, it yeah. belongs, and it, it blows you away. And it actually says, you know what, this stuff is okay. This stuff is accessible, you know, that kind yeah, of Yeah, I certainly, I, I don't think uh, that what you guys do is too precious. It just, right. that, th- it was basically like, how do you do it? How do you keep, because so many people do get too precious. And to what you were saying before about as the superheroes tried to get more serious, you start to question why they're wearing the underwear. Right. I I have a whole I've said it before that as soon as you start making jokes about Aquaman or wondering why Batman wears underwear on the outside, read something else. Like step away from that, and maybe start reading top shelf right. books or Vertigo books or whatever. Right. And then you'll find like a lot of the folks you have working for you. Like if they wrote a Batman story, it would be that the Batman they liked as a kid because that's what locked in right. and got us all reading comics. Right. If we were young enough to start reading with the superhero stuff. Right, and a lot of pros who obviously have been around for a while and have matured and such, they tend to read top shelf stuff, even yeah. though they work on Batman and Spider Man, you know, yeah, because yeah. they they like that stuff too, but they've grown beyond yeah. it in some ways, material wise, and and like the stuff that we're doing and read it as well. So we all uh, even sometimes it's always have more fans in the professional community than in the fan community in some it's, weird way. It's like being an artist, artist. You're yeah. a cartoonist publisher. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely there's a lot of pros that read superhero comics, but they're just reading back issues because they want it. They want that old feeling, right? And the modern stuff just doesn't do it. Yeah. Well, we all get imprinted artistically. Music yeah. is a real key there. You know, like a duck to its mother at sixteen or seventeen. Whatever's then is then. Whatever before that is hippie scum. Whatever after that is not as good as it once was. You know that kind of thing. You, you we we are d- despite how objective we think we are we live very subjective lives in the culture despite how the fact that you think wearing black head to toe and makeup makes you an, a loner outsider yet everybody you know it. does yeah. the exact same thing <laughs> you know we live subjective lives even as much as we try to look at what we do objectively and life is fun if you do things subjectively you know go see titanic in 1998 and love it you know what i mean like get into it not poo-poo everything because you don't want to be the guy that likes stuff you know like wear parachute pants every once in a while you know like right. enjoy getting swept along with some things it's kind of fun everyone have in a pleasures while. and not make them guilty yeah exactly i've heard you and and read you talk about the 
you know, how the fusion of, of words and pictures create, you know, great literature. And I do not disagree with that. Right. But you're also a musician, which is music and lyrics. There's no visual element. And you're imprinted very strongly with music and you're imprinted pretty strongly with comics. In your personal life, do you find one thing now as, as a, an older man, although you don't look it, <laughs> dare I say it, does one communicate more to you personally? Is there something that, that hits you harder? Um, be, just because of the way I'm wired in my whole life, music is still the number one influence in my life. Even though comics is my career, and yeah. I love comics dearly. I, I'm not saying that to belittle comics at all. But music is the one thing that actually tends to make me cry. You know, like I actually right. gets to the, the, <laughs> the heart, emotional core. Yeah, the emotional core of my being still. It's just that somehow the the melodies and the instrumentation along with the vocals of vocalization of lyrics can get to me more. Obviously, words and pictures and comics or just prose in general, they have more time to delve deeper into subjects because even a song with a message only has three minutes to impart that, and part of that is repetitive <laughs> yeah, phrases. Yeah. You know, so it's not like sure. it's not like it's a Tolstoy being lifted. It's a it's a it's a message. It's a slogan. You know, it's getting put out there. Let's take the music talk and let's get let's get into Elvis. All right, let's talk about it. You are a huge Elvis fan. I heard this before I came to talk to you, but now I'm in your office and there's Elvis stuff everywhere. <laughs> And it looks like, it looks like the focus is on young Elvis, for the uh, most part. Um, not so actually. In fact, funny, funny. Well, in terms of what it. I'm seeing, yes. Yeah, so, well, these are all his movie posters. So, so he made 33 films. So these are the right. 33 original movie posters that were that were hanging in theaters back in the day. And so he made those, you know, between 58 and 69. Before so he, he went, was before so he went he to war. Younger. Yeah. So I just I decided that I would just decorate the office with the posters because they were so big and visual. Yeah. But there's also a few, you know, there's some yeah, there's, there's some concert photos, Aloha photos, stuff from the 70s. But yeah, so a lot of the pictures are slightly younger Elvis in here. But so the first, do you have a do you have a favorite era Elvis? Is it young Elvis? Is it comeback leather suit? Is it uh, 70s Hawaii. The the 70s jumpsuit era is is definitely my favorite, even <laughs> though I love them all. And yeah. actually, that is exactly how you can tell a serious Elvis fan from a casual Elvis fan, because the casual Elvis fans always skew to the young Elvis when he was the rock and roll rebel, when he, you know, became the first world superstar, you know, right. and and be, and became that iconic image. Which believe me, every Elvis fan out there loves the 50s Elvis as well. But where Elvis became his most operatic where his soul was laid most bare where he was his most emotional was in the 70s in the jumpsuit era and so most hardcore elvis fans skew to the 70s so if you ask somebody a question and they say 50s you know they're in the club but not in the club you right. know that they're they're elvis fans but not like the crazy go to graceland every year for 10 days travel all over to elvis fans all over like this will be my 30th year going to graceland and i'm there for 12 days this year this summer you know that kind of thing i've been to graceland once right i thought it was very cool it was very surprising to me so my elvis stuff is probably very shallow relative certainly relative to what you're doing i think i started listening to it i don't remember maybe 12 years ago i started hearing it but i was approaching it from the attitude of I almost went backwards where I found it fascinating. I found jumpsuit Elvis fascinating because he's so famous. And I kind of think of it in the same terms of, of Marlon Brando, somebody who's so famous right. that it's almost, are they just pushing the limits of what they can get away with? 
Right. So is Elvis wearing these outfits until somebody says no and nobody's <laughs> saying no because he's Elvis. And then he's doing like the crazy karate on stage. Like all of it is so over the top. It's so blown out that you go, this is fascinating that he's getting away with it because he's so famous. Same thing with Marlon Brando, like doing whatever he wants. And everybody's like, well, he's a genius. He's Marlon Brando. Right. And the more I've seen Marlon Brando interviews, the more I'm convinced that he was just pushing, pushing people to see how much they'd accept him because he was famous. Right. I think, I, you know, obviously that's a funny way to look at it. And I, I have a very good sense of humor about Elvis because I, I believe Elvis is God. And but, I know But it not, shifted when I but, went to Graceland, right. my attitude, where I realized, oh, this guy was famous very quickly and had all the money in the world. And he was just living out every fantasy this guy had. Well, the interesting, there's a couple of interesting things about that. First of all, when you look back at it, it seems to be, like you said, sort of like a, a push too far, almost that kind yeah. of thing. But actually, it's because it becomes so overly iconic. And so it's just like like in Silence of the Lambs when somebody says, eat your liver with some fava beans. Yeah, like, yeah. If you were in theaters that first night and saw that movie, <laughs> it would scare the crap out of you. That line was not funny whenever that movie came out. But it's things get things become so iconic they become kitsch things become so kitsch they become kind of funny right and so the true the true elvis fans remember all that stuff when it was there when it was unique when it was original and i still have the same feeling i get when i see an elvis tribute artist do it the first time i ever saw it i don't view those things through the lens of kitsch and retrospect i view those things from the lens of reliving being able to sit in the front row at 1969 when he opened up in Vegas and relive that moment. So I'm That's seeing it with fresh eyes every time I watch it because I want to. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. A person who's not an Elvis fan will see it through kitsch eyes and through that jaded lens of satirical history and get a totally different vibe from it. For me, it's it's always fresh. You know. That's that interesting. Kind of see that you just answered another question, which was, what's the deal with the impersonators and why is that still? But it recaptures that thing. The impersonators are the holy communion of of elvis world they are the bread and the body of christ come down to earth so that we can relive this. that moment of him actually walking on the earth they are the resurrection and when they do it right and if you just squint just so he's there you're right and there. He, i mean even though they're never going to be as great as the king was they bring that magical moment back so much that I will lose it. I will just start crying. And, and my friends know me. They'll bring Kleenexes just so that they can have them near me because they know I'm going to actually fall apart when this stuff happens. Nothing affects me more emotionally than Elvis or those great Elvis tribute artists doing that stuff. And so I actively support that community. I, I donate money to a lot of the, the events. If I was ever a guy in a jumpsuit, he's never buying drinks or dinner around me. You know, like every right. everything I can do to support that world, I do. You know. So what do you do in Memphis for 12 days? Well, first of all, that is when all of us blue hairs show up at the same time in the same place. So we don't have to explain ourselves to each other. We're all as crazy as each other. Sure. We all have Elvis the same. And we get together. Yeah, the, the obvious things. You might tour Sun Records. You might visit Graceland. You might have things. But most of you go there to hang out with each other and to see the shows. You go there because the Elvis tribute artists come from all over the world and they put on a lot of shows there. So you might get to see between 80 and 100 performances while you're there that week. Featured headliner shows where they do an hour, hour and a half set or just contests where everybody's doing three or four songs and you'll you'll see 40 or 50 guys kind of compete for a, a throne or whatever a right. prize as the best tribute artist in the business. And there are several events like that. And then, then there's a lot of barbecue and there's a lot there's of drinking. A lot of good and there. 
there's just a lot of hanging out and and it's just a celebration of his life and a chance for all of us once to get a, to get together nowadays there's so many events all over the place just like comic book conventions there's elvis conventions all over the place now where you could literally tour if you were infinitely wealthy you could be at one every weekend there's that many of them now. like following fish yeah or the grateful dead exactly and so th- there's probably 10,000 or more working Elvis tribute artists, some making a lot of money, some like comics people just doing Weekend it warriors. for the love of it yeah. and participating where they're really, their jumpsuits are costing them more than they're making, but they do it because they love Elvis and we respect that. And th- you know that's why I try to support that community because I know how much time and energy and effort they put into this stuff. And have you yourself ever dipped into the... Uh, no. Okay. One, I'm, I'm not a good singer for one. <laughs> I have a terrible voice. And I understand pitch, but somewhere between my brain and my mouth, it goes, there's a disconnect there. Because I understand it musically. I have a good ear for a guitar, but I don't have it vocally. And I don't look good in a jumpsuit and <laughs> Elvis glasses. It's not happening for me. So, so in terms of Graceland, so I yeah. went. It was very cool. I thought the, the game room was, not the game room, uh, the TV room was but, my favorite of all the rooms. Right, with the three TVs with and the, the blue and the TVs. yellow. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the TCB on the wall. Yeah. So cool. Better than the jungle room. I know everybody talks about the jungle room, but that TV room was awesome. That was like a secret headquarters that, again, like a 15-year-old would would put together. Exactly. And be like, yeah, this is on three TVs, and I want my logo on the wall. (laughs) That I thought was very cool. Like even beyond any kitsch thing, like I get it. I'm starting to figure this out. Right. What I did not expect was the cemetery on the premises. Right. Which I didn't know that that was a thing. And that sort of threw me off significantly because they're buried there. Right. Elvis the meditation garden. They weren't originally buried there. They moved But they asked yeah. for special permission and were granted by the state of Tennessee. And so they're now, to protect them actually better if they were on premises than at a right. unguarded cemetery. And there's even a little plaque for Aaron. Right. His, his uh, stillborn Jesse twin. Aaron, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it Jesse Aaron? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jesse Garen. I'm sorry. Garen. Okay. Yes. It's Elvis Aaron. Yes. Yes. So that sort of threw me off. But then the other thing I noticed, and you can maybe speak to this, right. is part of the Elvis mythology, and this might be to the kitschy part, are the bigger stories, the more outlandish things, showing up at the White House with a gun, right. wanting that DEA badge, flying to Texas to get a sandwich on the Lisa Marie, buying Cadillacs for people. Right. A lot of that, none of that really is represented at Graceland. There's the big trophy room with the costumes and there's the all the gold records and all right. that stuff, which is very cool. But the bigger, grander sort of the ridiculous stuff isn't there. Well, I think the thing that's made Elvis still so topical in a sense, to me he represents he's the total embodiment of the American dream. The good and the bad of yeah. it. And every aspect of him has a total yin and yang element. He was the sort of the inventor of bling. The rings, the flashy suits. He did it before everybody in that sense. And he was he he was the maximum of it. Except he was also a very shy, humble country boy who always addressed people as ma'am and sir, took the time for people, was very personable one on one. If you if you you were in his presence, he was interested in you, he cared about you, you know. So he was a shy, humble country boy with very good manners. He was an excessive man. He was a big fighter of Drug abuse, and yet he succumbed <laughs> to drug abuse himself. Yeah. So every aspect of him on the American spectrum, he was the plus and the minus of that thing. So he he really was a very complex individual, which I think is what makes him which makes him kind of fascinating. So 
is it frustrating that Graceland sort of doesn't pay attention to that darker side, or is that stuff you know? Because I I wondered if if there would be a, a if there'd be any success. I feel like there would be if off of Graceland there's a a third you know an offshoot museum of like the other Elvis where it talked about all that stuff well, to sort think, of create that balance. All the all the Elvis fans know all that stuff, right? And and we've sort we've forgiven him for all his sins. Years ago, they're relevant to us. They make him who he was, right. you know. Like we, they're all a part of him, but they n- never overshadowed his contributions, which were many. And everybody has a, a small Elvis story, a big Elvis story. The stuff he used to, to the, the, how he touched so many people. Like you, know, you go there, and every year you're there, something magical happens. I don't know how it happens, but something magical happens every time you're there for everybody. He was one of those guys that when he sang, he was singing directly to you. There could be 50,000 people in the audience. You could just be watching him on TV. He could really touch the TV screen and touch you, unlike all these evangelicals who think they can and want your money. Elvis actually could look through the TV and touch you. He just had that something about that charisma that obviously that was you, the eyes of the beholder, interpreting it that way, not necessarily him projecting it to you. But you, you felt that way around him, and he just had the effect. Now, you either... Get it or you don't. Most of the fans that I know who are really rabid Elvis fans all got touched about the same age, between four and six. We were all at that age when we caught the bug, when we fell in love with Elvis and never let go. It's the only thing I could have a tattoo of if I ever got a tattoo, which I probably won't, is Elvis related something other, and not his face because nobody could do that right, but you know, a TCB logo or something like that. Which is because it's the only thing from start to finish in my life I've stayed loyal to, you know. So that's it's. I like hearing this stuff because it's. Again, I'm not considering myself any sort of level of Elvis fan. I like I like a bunch of the music. I think there's something cool about it. I try to understand it. This is helping me understand yeah, it. Yeah. But I certainly was not young enough. You know, I remember vaguely when he died, but I was a little kid. Right. And I didn't really know, you know, I grew up in a house where Elvis wasn't really, the Beatles were the thing in our house. Sure. And I know there's a story there with Elvis and the Beatles and the comeback tour and the black leather suit was him saying, watch this. You know, on some levels, him saying, yeah, the Beatles are big, but here's, here I come again. Well, he, right? you know, he really did reinvent himself several times. You know, first of all, in the 50s, he, he came out as the, the rock and roll rebel. Yeah. Then he went into the army and came back out when he actually should have probably been forgotten at that point, came back out reinvented himself and the world actually adopted him even bigger than before because he was legitimized as a as a veteran ed sullivan you know (laughs) you know said he was a good man like this he came back and sort of his his music mellowed but got richer and he he got bigger then he became movie star so he was the gi blues guy he became the movie star guy and then in 68 he came back in black leather and knocked the world on its socks i remember watching the 68 comeback special my three big moments as a kid on tv which have never been eclipsed was Aloha from Hawaii in 73's biggest day television day I ever had in my life. Still the greatest TV event ever. And the 68 comeback special, which I remember. And then Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Those are the three biggest uh, TV moments of my life. You know. Did Still you ever see Elvis live? I never saw Elvis live. Ironically, my parents were not really musical people all that much. And um, I was uh, 15 when Elvis died in 77. And they had decided for some arbitrary reason that I had to be 16 before I could start going to concerts. You know, that kind of, that was their age that they were going to say. So I wasn't allowed to go, you know, travel downtown LA and go see bands or whatever. So I didn't get to go see Elvis when he was alive. 
ironically, when I turned 16, my first concert was a, a, a Black Sabbath concert where if my parents were worried about influences, they should have just gone and let me go see the King, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I never did get to see Elvis live, but that's okay. It, it's, you know, I'm as close to him as I am to anybody, and it's, it's been wonderful. I'm so glad that it's been I'm here at this particular time on this planet. That's all, you know. Now, there are people that will poo-poo Elvis. Yes. I mentioned Little Richard earlier. Sure. Uh, Chuck D has a, has a lyric in Fight the Power. Right, right. That certainly uh, takes Elvis to task on some right. level. Sure. Uh, not that you have to speak for Elvis or the, or the Elvis-ocracy, uh, but how do, when, when that stuff sort of comes in, how do you, how do you deal with that? It doesn't bother me at all because from everybody else's perspective, those things are, can actually be true. Like I, I understand that my undying universal love for him is ridiculous <laughs> on one level. You know, that, that, that I, and I ask these questions without judgment. I, I just, I'm I curious. Because I, I, I have, he is my religion because it's where I go when I'm in trouble. It's where I go when I'm happy. It's where I go for when I need somebody in, in that community. And I, there's many a time where I've actually gotten in my car and driven to the meditation garden at Graceland because I needed to go, you know, like I needed to talk to somebody, you know, and, and, but at the same time, I get that that works for me, but everything else works for every, everybody else. I mean, that's one of the things as you grow up, you have to realize that everybody intrinsically has the idea that they're the center of the universe and that their opinions are right and everybody else's opinions are wrong. We're kind of all born with that sure. conceit in ourselves. But as you get older, you realize that all those points of light are real and true, and everybody has, they're entitled to their opinions, and they're true from their perspective. So people who take shots at the king, people who don't like the king, I understand that intrinsically, and I wouldn't expect everybody to. I like the fact that not everybody does. I like the fact that it's me and my core set of friends who right. are the loyal ones you know it makes it more fun that's everybody wants to be a part of a little club of sorts you know and then in terms of the term you know you said you could tell if somebody's a real elvis fan by which elvis they love do you do the same thing with which songs they like so if somebody says they like suspicious minds versus jailhouse rock um no versus not are necessarily you tonight? I, and i'll tell you why because if real elvis fans are almost have an impossible time picking a favorite Elvis song because it changes all the time. Sure. So like even, even when you go to Graceland every year, there's always something in the air where there's one or two songs that turn into the songs of that thing. Where Like every Elvis tribute artist will show up and go, nobody's done this one in a while. You know, like I'm going to do this song and blow everybody away. And then eight of them that night do that one right. song, <laughs> you know, because they all came with that idea. And that's the year of that song. And those guys tend to remind me about songs maybe I haven't listened to in a while. And it's like, you know what? This year, that's my favorite song. You know, this month, that's my favorite song because they've made me put that back on the turntable. Again. Sure. So I, I, it changes a lot. It's, it's very difficult to choose a favorite. Yeah, I wasn't about to ask you to do that. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I can't. Really. I mean, I, the ones I think of, I, I, I love Suspicious Minds because yeah, it's, it's great so song. great. And then I happen to love the part, Are you the, the monologue in Are You Lonesome Tonight? Where he sort of casually mentioned Shakespeare, right. <laughs> as if like someone once said. I just think that's the funniest thing in the world. I don't know if it was intended to be funny, but that cracks me up every time I hear it. It took him a while to nail that down. I just because I think he was having fun with it at the time. So it's it's great. The last bit on Elvis, and yeah. I'm going to tie this a little bit to to where my interests come from. Yeah. Elvis impersonators, a notable one is Andy Kaufman. Yes. Was he that good? Andy Kaufman 
in the strictest sense, yeah. wasn't a brilliant Elvis impersonator, but he was great. Yes. He was great because, first of all, like, uh, big Elvis fans really respect other people who really love Elvis. And there's no doubt about it, Andy Kaufman <laughs> loved Elvis Presley. And what, what's cause so funny, like, all of his, imp- every impression he ever did of anybody was just in the Lotka voice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is so and so, right? You know, like, you are a stupid. That's the, that's yeah. the only amount of respect he gave anybody right. in an impression. But yet, as soon as he said, I want to do Elvis Presley for you, you know, he, he would turn around, let the music start, spend five minutes just gearing up for it, and <laughs> yeah. turn around and give a show. So that's just like the ultimate respect. Everybody else is on this level. Elvis is on this level. How can you not, res- can you not do you, respect that? Do you think that story of him going to Vegas to see Elvis and like sneaking behind? Do you know that story? I'm not sure. What, what so that? Andy Kaufman's story is that when he was, I guess, a teenager, he went to Vegas where he knew Elvis was performing and snuck through the kitchen right. to see him and caught him on his way to the stage and said to Elvis, one day I'm going to be as famous as you are. And Elvis' response was like, I believe you or something. Mm-hmm. And that was their one interaction. They never met or dealt with each other again. Considering it's Andy Kaufman, who is Andy Kaufman, do you, you know, is there stories on the Elvis side that like this happened or didn't happen? I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I, I would imagine it did. You know, I, I don't, it, it, that's not so like flamboyantly grandiose of a tale, you know, right. Right, that it seems fabricated. A lot of people did run into him. And a lot of people have very, you know, touching moments and stories about, you know, running into him and doing things, whatever. But no, I I, I did love Andy Kaufman's impression. Or was he the best vocalist in the world for that kind of stuff? No. <laughs> Is but there somebody who's the best? There, no, there's a lot of really good okay. Elvis tribute The game has been up so much. It's, it's like the, the way they dress, the suits, the, the way they sing, the way they perform, the way they look. There's several guys performing right now, like a young Elvis named Cody Slaughter, uh, uh, a couple of uh, British Elvis tributes like Ben Portsmouth and Pete Storm, who look so good on stage, so much like him on stage, that it's kind of uncanny that they're channeling him on sort of all all levels now. But but there's there's so many good working, uh, brilliantly vocals like Anthony Shore is one of my favorites. She sings great. Some big does some songs that you know I just absolutely adore. And there's just I don't know there's a zillion great ones out there. This is awesome. I'm, I've have we covered everything. Is there anything else we need to? Anything else you want to tell the world about Elvis? Well, comics and Elvis. Those are my favorite subjects to talk about. So we're all good. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, man. Well, I don't know about you, but that song. Suspicious Minds is awesome, and I couldn't not close close out the conversation with that. So, the tease before the conversation was, did Chris know about the IDW thing at the time? Was that something he was aware of in the conversation? I asked him that. I'm going to read you his response, his answer. Quote, Yes, in early 2014, IDW and Top Shelf had started initial talks. So in June, I did know that it was a possibility, but never one to count chickens before they've hatched. Top Shelf was simply continuing normal operations and planning things as we always would. So the things we were looking forward to are the same as they are now, except we can now do them at a pace we had always hoped we would. So there you go. That's the scoop 
Fistaros was aware of it, but he wasn't going to talk about it, and that's completely fair. And I think this conversation gives a really nice, what's the word I'm looking for? Illustration? Representation of what it is to be a small publisher in comics and to be a publisher with a very specific type of mission statement or output or what have you. And selfishly, it was a lot of fun to just go through the books I liked and get a little backstory on them and the creators and that sort of thing. And I, I would recommend seeking out all the books and the creators I mentioned. They're all really great comics. And I don't see a dime. I make nothing from that. So, you know, completely selfless. But now I get selfish. The show is available at StuffSaidShow.com. That's the website for the show. If you go there, you'll see each episode going all the way back to the very beginning, plus a bunch of show notes. For example, this episode, Chris has supplied us, supplied me, although you, you're part of it too, with some photos from his metal years. Lethal Promise. Go to the website. You can see the pictures. And also on the website, you can leave a comment about the episode. You can donate to support the show. I always, always encourage that. You can email me. Stuffsaid at gmail.com is the email address. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg Schiegel, G-R-E-G-G-S-C-H-I-G-I-E-L. If you don't want to donate, if you're like, I'm not going to donate. This show is free. I'm going to listen to it for free, and that's it. But you want to still show some support, here's how you can do it. You can buy my book, Picks, One Weirdest Weekend. It will be in comic stores, better comic stores everywhere, February 11th. If your store doesn't have it, have them order it because it's on the backlist at Diamond, and they can do that. I'll put the item code up in the show notes. If you don't want to go to a comic store, how dare you? You can order it. You can pre-order it on Amazon for release on February 24th. Or you can go to PixComic.com, P-I-X-C-O-M-I-C.com, and order it directly from me. Print or digital, that's where you can get signed copies, etc. Go there, you'll see it's all there. The show is on iTunes. I ask you to go to iTunes and rate the show five stars and leave a review. If you leave a review, it means something to someone, not just me. If you don't know what to write, you could write... The perennial, just the words five stars, or anything you want to write about Elvis. You could say the king. You could say, does little Richard hate Elvis? You can say, I like blank, and list whatever the Elvis song is that you like. Those are the options. Speaking of iTunes, I've got another podcast, a second podcast just launched in December. It's called Cruising Together. It is myself and Chris Giruso, chronologically discussing quote-unquote the films of tom cruise if you like the stuff said group shows with me and chris and smitty and jacob i encourage you to check out cruising together and subscribe and do all the same things i just said about this show stuff said is also part of the acme wave projector network at acmewaveprojector.com the theme music for stuff said is by craig chin he is at rudeanagrams.com and I am at HatterEntertainment.com, H-A-T-T-E-R Entertainment.com. That is the official centralized hub of all things Greg Schiegel, pop.
podcasts, comics, whatever. I write things about food sometimes. Got some good shows coming up. Uh, Until then, that's about all the stuff I have left to say. See you next time. Oh, my God.